1: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in
2: History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Jablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this episode is about a character who almost needs really no introduction. He's one of our most requested topics and probably one of the most gruesome stories that ever gets requested. It gets requested around Halloween a lot. A lot. Well, yes, especially this Halloween because we did Belle Gunnis, which is sort of a similar topic. Parallel story. Yep. So, of course, I'm talking about H.H. Holmes, whose crimes and murderous exploits were featured in Eric Larson's best-selling book, Devil in the White City, which is kind of a chronicle of what was going on in Chicago at the end of the 19th century, particularly as it pertained to the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair. The Time of the World's Fair is often thought of as a kind as kind of the height of Holmes' criminal activity, which is why he fits into that story. And he's also often called America's first serial killer, although we now know from previous podcasts that others like Bell Gunnis may have been close on his heels.
1: But I think what's really interesting about the Holmes story isn't that the bone-chilling, gruesome nature of his crimes. It's how he how he really pulled them off. I mean, that's what interests you, too, I think, Tablina.
3: Absolutely. I mean, when you learn his story, you find yourself asking over and over again, how did he not get caught? Why did people fall for his schemes and fall into the traps that he set? And
1: why didn't more people report all of the suspicions they were feeling?
3: Exactly. So it's kind of similar to the Belgena story in that way, because I think you sort of ask yourself those kind of questions whenever you have How had did a, it get so far? Yes. And there are some ideas about why he was able to get so far, or literally get away with murder for so long. And we'll take a look at those as we tell the story of his crime spree and the sort of house of horrors that he built in Chicago in the late 1800s, which came to be known as Murder Castle. But first, we're
1: going to take a look at his early days and take a look a little bit about what the childhood of a serial killer is like. So Holmes was born Herman W. Mudgett. May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, which was a small farming village in New Hampshire. He had a brother and a sister, and his father, Levi, was a farmer and a postmaster. His mother was a very religious woman, and both parents were devout Methodists, but the father was especially strict, and he doled out harsh punishments for even minor misbehavior in his children. Consequently, little Herman Mudgett was beaten quite a lot As a child, and according to a History Magazine article by Phil Jones, Mudgett's father would even use kerosene vapor on the children sometimes to make them be quiet when they were being too noisy.
3: As a child, Mudgett spent a lot of time on his own inventing things like a wind-powered device to scare birds off his family farm. A lot of sources also suggest that another early pastime of his was experimenting on animals both dead and alive, which, of course, basically amounted to torture, though Larson's book suggests that this might have just been speculation on the part of researchers. His only childhood friend was a kid named Tom who died in a fall when they were playing in an abandoned house. Obviously, this was considered an accident at the time, but after learning what you're about to in the rest of this podcast, it might seem more like Mudgett's first victim. Suspicious. So,
1: Mudgett graduated from school at age 16 and initially went to work as a teacher in New Hampshire. And while he was teaching, he met a woman named Clara A. Loverling, who he just totally won over with his charm, and that's something important to consider for these podcasts too. The sort of power he had over women is really a recurring theme throughout this story. They found him very good-looking, of course. He had dark brown hair and blue eyes and a thick mustache, popular at the time, but his manner, too, was charming. He was affectionate. He had a way of making them feel like they were really the only women in the world, and so he'd get close to them, and not just um, not just in a, uh, like, charming them kind of way. He would actually touch them, and that wasn't exactly appropriate at the time, but instead of being offended by this behavior, um, a lot of women who he met seemed excited by it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we've all met someone like that, that person who just sort of really hangs on every word you say, maybe touches your arm when you're having a bad day and you're telling about it, and just kind of makes you feel like you're the only Person in the world, or and
1: potentially creeps you out, depending potentially
3: creeps you out on how
1: far they take it. Yeah,
3: or I guess depending on how observant you are. But and I, I mean, I can see, I can see him
1: crossing that line with with some people
3: Uh, apparently he didn't cross the line too much a lot of women were taken with him and Mudgett and Clara married on July fourth, 1878 when Mudgett was about 18 years old and they had one child together, a son but it didn't take long for the romance here to die out Mudgett started going away for long periods of time and then finally just left even though the two were still legally married then Mudgett decided he wanted to study medicine and so he went to college at age 19 he started out at the University of Vermont in Burlington, where, according to Jones' article, he paid tuition with Clara's inheritance. So we can see maybe a motive for marrying her in the first place here. But after about a year, he transferred to the U- University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, which was, according to Larson's book, known for its emphasis on dissection.
1: Hmm, picking a program that his strong suit. So Mudgett wasn't remembered as an especially stellar student, though. And this might have been because his mind was occupied by a lot of other things, one of which was making money. So according to an article in Biography by David Goldman, it was while he was at the University of Michigan that Mudgett took his first stab at insurance fraud. So he'd steal cadavers from the anatomy lab at school and then disfigure them so that they couldn't be recognized. Then he would take out insurance policies on the cadavers, setting them up as some kind of fictional family members and, of course, naming himself as the beneficiary. And then he'd stage these accidents in various locations to make it look like the cause of the uh, the accident caused the cadavers' death. And then he'd collect on the insurance policy and get the cash.
3: After leaving college, and there's actually some question, I think, about whether he actually graduated or not. Some sources say yes. Others say that he was expelled when his cadaver stealing was discovered. But after he left, Mudgett traveled to various cities for the next six years, basically scamming people wherever he went, trying to make a buck however he could, even if it came down to skipping out on lodging bills without paying. I mean, he was really trying to get out of paying every last dollar if he could. In Philadelphia... When he was working there, a child died after taking medicine from a drugstore that he worked at, so he fled the city soon after.
1: So by 1886, Mudgett had landed in Chicago. And once he was there, he started looking for a job in a suburb, a growing suburb, Englewood, which was south of Chicago. And since he had had that whole issue with the child dying from the medicine, he changed his name. He started going by the alias H.H. Holmes and went into a drugstore that was owned by an elderly woman named Mrs. Holton, asking if she needed anybody to help in her store. Basically, he told her his credentials which seemed pretty impressive and he used that same magnetic charm we talked about earlier that he'd use on young women when he was flirting with them and um, mrs holton ended up opening up to him you know telling him that her husband who lived with her in the apartment upstairs was very ill he was dying she really needed somebody like holmes to come in and help her out with the store
2: hey Ollie, we have some exciting news
0: you're really going to enjoy, the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So she ended up hiring him, and he eventually took over operation of the store pretty much completely. After Mr. Holton died, Holmes offered to buy the store and to allow Mrs. Holton to keep living in the apartment upstairs. He got the money to buy the place in a pretty shady way, though. He did it by mortgaging fixtures and merchandise from the store itself. He also agreed to make payments of $100 a month to Mrs. Holton to cover the balance. According to both Jones and Goldman's articles, though, Holmes eventually stopped making these payments, and Mrs. Holton filed a lawsuit against him. Before it could go very far, though, she just disappeared.
1: So, loyal customers, you know this lady has been an institution in this neighborhood for a while. Loyal customers started asking, where is Mrs. Holton? And Holmes just told them that she'd gone out to California, visiting a relative, uh, and then, well, lo and behold, she decided to stay in California, to move there. But he couldn't give them any kind of forwarding address. Meanwhile, though, Holmes was proving a a bit of an institution himself. He built up a following. People, especially female customers, really liked this charming, young, single doctor who had taken over the drugs store and was running a pretty successful business.
3: So not long after buying the store, Holmes started a courtship with Myrta Belknap, who he'd met before when he was living in Minneapolis for a little while. He drew her in with that charm that we keep mentioning and with the allure of the big city of Chicago. I mean, to a girl, I guess Minneapolis wasn't as... Hot a ticket as Chicago was at the time. So she was really attracted to the idea of living here in the big city Ready with this move. intriguing, Live handsome man. And they got married on January 28, 1887. And of course, he didn't tell her that he was already married to somebody else under a different name. But apparently, he did try at this time to petition for divorce. He filed a petition with the Supreme Court of Cook County, Illinois claiming that his first wife had been unfaithful so he was going to totally destroy her reputation in the process, but he never followed up on that petition, so it was eventually dismissed.
1: Meanwhile, Myrda did come to Chicago and lived and worked in the store with Holmes, and at first everything was okay it seemed, but she started to get jealous of the way the female customers flirted with Holmes. They would, for instance, often ask for him specifically, and eventually Murda became more possessive and also pregnant And so Holmes asked her to manage the store's books, which got her out of the
3: store and upstairs into the office all day. And it's interesting. I've seen the way this described. It's not as though he was angry with her for being possessive. He just saw her as kind of an obstacle to what he was trying to do. Exactly. Exactly. So she was unhappy being stuck up in this office and ended up going to live with her parents in Wilmette, Illinois, where her daughter, uh, where she had her daughter with Holmes, Lucy. And Holmes would sometimes visit them and bring money for them and gifts to his daughter. And he'd even play with his daughter, Lucy, and seemed to dote on her while he was there. When he was there, he seemed like the perfect husband. That's how he acted. But his visits started to become few and far between.
1: So by this point, Holmes, aka Mudgett, had abandoned two families, and he was running this booming business, and that was clearly the foremost thing on his mind. So in the summer of 1888, thinking about expanding business even more, he bought a whole block of land across the street at the intersection of 63rd and Wallace in Inglewood, which was undeveloped at this point, and he started sketching out some ideas for a new building that he wanted to put there. It was going to be a mixed-use development. That's probably what people would call it now. But he had some strange ideas about how he was going to build it, to say the least.
3: He did. And we should mention why he was designing this place himself, why he was doing the sketching. He didn't want to work with an architect because then he would have to reveal all of the secrets of the structure. And its intended purpose. Which
1: was very mixed use, if you think about
3: it. (laughs) Indeed. And he needed to avoid this situation at all costs. So he designed the whole thing himself. And the plan was for the first floor to have retail shops and the second and third floor to have apartments. And that would include Holmes' own flat and his office, which would be in a corner of the second floor. And the apartments he was planning weren't exactly normal apartments either.
1: No, they weren't normal. In fact, they were really creepy and weird. He planned, for example, to have a secret wooden chute that would stretch from the second floor to the basement. That's unusual. Not like a laundry chute or a trash chute. Just
3: Yeah, and he planned to oil the chute too. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's weird. He also wanted another room fitted with a large walk-in airtight vault that had asbestos coated iron walls.
3: Some of the rooms were also designed to be windowless and had and to have gas jets installed, the controls to which were to be in Holmes office. There were also plans for a hidden staircase or several hidden staircases and passageways. And the large basement that it had was intended to contain more hidden chambers and a sub-basement.
1: So Holmes really seemed to like planning this building. It was kind of a delight for him. But actually getting it built was a really big challenge because like an architect, construction workers could just as easily become familiar with the scope of his project, you know, start realizing secret care staircases, chutes, airtight vaults, all of that, putting it together and starting to (laughs) make some assumptions. So he wanted to keep all of these suspicious details as secret as possible. So he addressed this problem just as he had acted like his own architect. He acted as his own contractor and hired lots of different carpenters and other workmen to come in and build little parts of the structure just by putting ads in the paper for for guys to come help him out. But when the workers would come to collect their pay after finishing whatever small project they were involved in, he'd act like he was displeased and tell them they had done a bad job, even if their work was fine, and fire them on the spot. Ironically, it
3: fulfilled another demand of Holmes, which was penny pinching. It did. It helped him save money, and he was able to continuously cycle through different workers so that no one person knew the layout of the entire thing. So one person would maybe install part of the gas jet or something and then be fired, and another person would maybe start the wooden chute, and, you know, a third person would finish it or something. I mean... And I think this is the first part where it surprises
1: me that word didn't get out. Not so much that this is a really strange construction project that's going going on, but that don't go work for Dr. Holmes because he never pays his workers.
3: Yeah, it is surprising that word never got out. I guess that's the advantage of hiring individual random workers rather than going with a company or a group.
1: I suppose so. But also he supposedly would test certain workers and ask them to do these really deplorable things for extra cash.
3: Yes, in his book, Larson mentions a particular bricklayer named George Bowman, for example. Holmes apparently pointed out a man to Bowman once and asked him to drop a stone on the man's head for $50. He said the man was his brother-in-law and that they didn't get along, and that was sort of his reasoning for asking Bowman to do this. There's a city far away.
0: A fiction podcast.
3: The richest, most powerful place on earth.
0: On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay.
3: Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire. Threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
1: We have to get away from this
0: place, or we will die too.
3: The truth makes us strong.
0: Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide.
3: They are among us.
0: Who?
3: First a few, and now many.
0: From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker.
3: The only thing I ask of you is total
0: and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tumen Bay. Be
3: sharp and die Bay!
0: Listen to all episodes of Tumen Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: So it's also possible, of course, I mean, we're not sure. It might have been that Holmes had an insurance policy on the brother-in-law, the supposed, you know, quote, unquote, brother-in-law. But it might have just been a test, as we mentioned. But Bowman, ultimately, he didn't do it, and he left the job soon after. But he was really creeped out by the situation. But again, didn't go tell anyone about it.
1: There were a few guys, though, who passed these weird test that holmes would set up and over time they became his accomplices one was a man named patrick quinlan who ultimately became the caretaker of the murder house another was benjamin peitzel who was a carpenter who holmes once posted bail for and he becomes pretty important later in the story in the second episode
3: so one disadvantage to working this way, to working, rotating through workers, I guess, um, and never working with the same crew for the, for an extended period of time, was that it just was really slow. The whole building process was really slow. So Holmes' building took years to complete. It was finally done in about May of 1890, and Holmes sold his drugstore across the street. And he apparently told the new owner, the person who bought it, that he wouldn't have to worry much about competition in the area. She'd
1: probably assume to me, don't worry, I won't reopen my drugstore.
3: Yes, but of course, then he went across the street to his new building and immediately opened another drugstore. So I guess the joke was on the new guy. He also opened several other businesses on the building's first floor, including a restaurant and a barbershop.
1: But we're going to focus more on all of those apartments. So the second and the third floors of Holmes's building, they had about 70 rooms initially. But then, as talk of the 1893 World's Fair started to heat up, Holmes decided that he wanted to turn his building into kind of a hotel for the fair. And the fair at that point was set to be located conveniently right down the street from Holmes's building. So perfect location. Making this change, though, from apartments to a World's Fair hotel would not only allow him to get a better fire insurance policy, you know, Holmes always after the best insurance deal, but it would also attract more clients to his building. So in 1891... Acting, again, as his own architect, he planned the necessary adjustments and employed his usual method of rotating through workers so no one person would really catch on to the overall plan, what he was doing.
3: But even though he was still managing to keep his labor costs low by constantly firing workers, he still needed some more cash to get his project completed. So he took advantage of visiting his second wife, Myrda, who's still living in Wilmette with her parents, when her rich uncle, Jonathan Belknap, comes to visit. While Belknap is there, Holmes comes and he brings gifts for everyone, and he makes this big show of being a great husband, even though, of course, we know that he's an absentee husband. Belknap was initially suspicious of Holmes because he knew he and Murda had had a rocky relationship, but over the course of a few days, Holmes does manage to win him over a bit. So when Holmes later asked him to endorse a note for two thousand five hundred dollars, which he claimed he'd use toward a new house for him and Murda, Belknap complied. I mean he looks at this and he thinks, hey, maybe them living together in their own house will be a good thing for their marriage. Maybe and He finally my got his act together. Yes.
1: Holmes wasn't planning on building a house, though, in case he didn't guess that. He went back to Englewood and forged Belknap's signature on a second note to put toward construction of his new hotel. And not long after that, he asked Uncle Belknap himself to come visit Englewood and see his building. And Belknap couldn't quite put his finger on why, but he was really wary about Holmes' offer for some reason. He didn't want to offend him or offend his niece, though, so he agreed to to go ahead and and visit the new place. Once he arrived, he got this full tour from Holmes of all the shops on the first floor and then the rooms upstairs. Falknab didn't really have a great impression of the whole thing. He thought it was gloomy and weird, which is a sense that we'll also get from others who visit this place later. Finally, though, Holmes invited Belknap to go on the roof of the building. And Belknap just, at this point, did not feel good about this offer at all.
3: Yeah, I mean, part of it is he just doesn't really like Holmes still, even though he wants to try for the sake of his niece. But he also thinks the situation is kind of strange. strange, Yeah, Yeah, getting stranger by the minute. So he makes an excuse saying that he's too old to take on that number of steps, and Holmes just keeps trying, though, and trying to convince him, bragging about the view up there and so forth, and telling him he can check out the construction better from there, but Belknap wouldn't budge. So then, Holmes invited Belknap to spend the night. He didn't want to do this either. Um, he finally agreed with him, though, just because he figured, I'm refusing so much, I'm really going to offend him at this point. So, to keep things um, just sort of, you know, cool amicable. With the exactly. He decides, okay, I'll stay the night. So that night, after Holmes shows him to his room on the second floor, Belknap locks his door. He still has that sort of uneasy feeling, and after what happens later on, we find out that he'll be really glad that he did that. So that's it for part one of this podcast, but next time, of course, we're going to see what happens with Belknap's fate, but of course... We're going to check out some more details also on Holmes' reign of terror during the World's Fair, his eventual flight from Chicago, and we're going to discuss how he ultimately gets caught, which is an interesting story in itself. And the fate
1: of the murder castle, too. Don't forget that.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, the murder castle is like a, a character in itself in this whole story. So we will absolutely find out what happens with that. Until then, though, you'll have to enjoy some listener mail so we have an awesome postcard here from listener lana and she says sarin dublina i adore your podcast and it came in handy on my recent trip to prague where i came upon the grave of Tycho brahe thanks to your expertise i was able to provide my friends with tales of his drunk moose as well as his metal nose and in parentheses she says his relief has a line at the nose to mark the prosthetic keep up the great work all the best So her
1: postcard is a is a photo of his monument and I think Dublina and I looked pretty close. We were trying to see the line, but I think it's something you must have to be there in person. I
3: can't. I've been staring at it a while and now I feel like I can see it, but I think I might (laughs) be just making it up in my head.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe we should look around the office for a magnifying glass and, and see if we can tell. <laughs> Check it out. Oh, I trust Lana. So thank you, Lana. And that's a that's another good fact for us to know about Tika, that the nose is even on his tomb.
3: Indeed. And if you want to share any details of your own travels with us or send us some ideas for future podcasts, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at com. where you can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Mr. in History.
1: And if you want to learn more about other kind of creepy houses, potentially cool houses, they don't all have to be murder castles. We do have an article on eccentric homes with hidden passageways. So be sure to check that out by searching for eccentric homes with hidden passageways on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com.
0: Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.